0: Aha, Alaska, or just about anywhere the fish are biting. We have some fantastic guests and reports lined up for you this evening, so sit back, relax, and get ready for the fastest two hours in radio. It's all right here, right now, on Rod and Reel Radio, the best stop on your radio dial for all the information you need for fishing opportunities all over the United States. Now here's your host, Hop along,
1: John Cassidy. Hey. <laughs> Thank you, Mark Larson, and welcome, Southern California, to the Sunday edition of Rod and Real Radio. I am, indeed, your underfish toast. Hop along, John Cassidy, and it is a pleasure to welcome you to tonight's show. Well, you know, we are in uh, the middle of spring, and fish, both on the saltwater, freshwater side, they're biting, and we'll be talking a little bit about that tonight. But really, the topic of tonight's show is going to be kind of interesting there is a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes and I think there's a lot of anglers both on the fresh and saltwater side that just don't realize the people that are working in their behalf to keep the sport of fishing going here in California and it's not only the recreational fishermen but it's also concerns of the commercial fishermen so we're going to talk a little bit about those subjects tonight and I think you're going to find them interesting and both of our guests have really been involved with the behind-the-scenes activities for a long time. Our first guest coming up tonight is going to be Tom Rafkin. He is uh, president of the Sports Fishing Conservancy. And we're going to talk about the program that they launched almost 20 years ago to build an artificial reef off of Palos Verdes. What they had to go through, maybe the history of artificial reefs, why have they been successful? Why have they not been successful? And talk about this particular reef and how it's doing right now. You know, it, who knows how long it took to make the breakwater in Long Beach and in L.A. and other jetties that we have up and down the coast. But why does it take so long to do something that's so beneficial for both sports fishing and commercial fishing here in Southern California? So Tom Raftigan is going to talk about that. And then in the second hour, we're going to have uh, Mike Conroy on. And uh, we're going to be talking about some of the issues that have been plaguing both sports and commercial fishermen here in Southern California a long time. We're going to talk about, oh, the 30 by 30 project. We'll probably talk a little bit about sea spiracy. We'll maybe get to offshore renewable energies, but we'll talk about maybe one of the successes that both the sports fishing and commercial industry have had just in recent weeks, and that's with sardine quotas. So we'll be talking about that tonight. It's going to be an interesting topic. You're going to really enjoy, I think, hearing about what goes on behind the scenes to get these particular activities done and others here in your behalf. But before we get all to all that, let me introduce to you my co-host, first of all, this individual is the voice behind the one eight hundred Bass boat. He's pretty darn good fresh and saltwater fisherman and it's all right Stan Vandenberg. Stan how you doing tonight good evening John doing well
2: good evening everybody it, uh a fun weekend again had uh, another tournament and and had a fun time at that <laughs> it was fun and and not so fun, but it was it turned out fun i don't care how you cut it. <laughs> Fishing should be fun, Stan. But what happened to you? Well, uh, the fishing has been, you know, in all of the lakes right now. Everything is what you call pre spawn fishing, where the the females have to eat the crawdads and they're trying to bulk up. Uh, the crawdads give the keratin to the eggs to harden the eggs. They do the. There's wood in the the lake. Uh, a lot of the the females will go rub on their bellies on the wood, and then they'll kind of lay down on the on the in the rock and just kind of sit there not do a whole lot and and wait for something to crawl by to eat. Uh, the males on the other hand are all up on the in the backs of the coves or uh, secondary points of the coves, depending on the moon phase. We were dark of the moon this one. So they were more on the the tops and edges of the secondary points to go or or getting ready to go into the shallower water on the, on the full moon to spawn. So you kind of have to plan your your attack of what they're eating and where to find them. And since there's not a lot of shad uh, that are in the, the picture right yet, usually shad go deep in the fall and, and die, and you have that die off. And there may be some in the lakes and some areas of the lakes, but it's usually that one area that holds whatever's left of that uh, population. And there's different kinds of shad, so that kind of comes into the picture too. But there's a lot that goes into the thinking for the process. Um, I I tended to... The last tournament, I, I didn't pre-fish at all, and I went in and um, made a, a mistake. I got three fish, bang, 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 and one was a four-and-a-half in 15 feet of water or less, and I thought I'd target that, and I only moved out to thirty five when the sun came high, And I, I mean to 25, and I needed to be in 35 feet, and I usually always do that, but the fish keep faking me out, <laughs> so I followed the wrong thing. This tournament, I changed it up and uh by shoot uh, in the first hour uh i I pretty much had a a shot at it i know but i and i lost my my i lost the tournament because i lost four big fish in a row Um, not i mean enough i lost 20 pounds and four fish so if i'd have landed those fish i'd have had upwards of 26, 27 pounds, which would have been easy, but as it was, I ended up coming in with uh, big fish for five and a half pounds um, and uh, 558, and then ended up in second place by two ounces, the guy that beat me, the same guy that won it the last week, and I told him I was coming for him, <laughs> good, good, good fisherman, and we have a long time friendship and rivalry there, and And I thought I had him until uh, the way in there, and the two ounces beat me. But that was cool. I ended up with second place, and big fish for the tournament almost t- took home the same amount of money that, that, as he did in first place. The trick in these tournaments is you got to make subtle moves. A lot of these fish don't want to move. They're not chasing Chad. They're not chasing a trout. They will chase. That swim bait comes into play. A lot of guys got a chance to throw that. Um there were several fish caught on on swim baits, but not the not the big ones, smaller ones. And and a lot of times the guys will get into where they can throw that underspin and bring it back uphill on the edges and, and catch these fish too, because they don't have to move faster using the slow retrieve on a light bait. Um, so those things come into play. The drop shot is probably the favorite. Um, the guys throwing a jig once in a while on the on bigger drop-off edges, a jig comes into play because that's where the crawdads will crawl. And we got, I had all kinds of crawdad parts in the well, Uh, big claws and all red. So there's already starting to change in the lower lakes. That stuff at sea level spawns first, and the higher you go, the later the spawn is. So look for, you know, in San Diego, the spawn's got to be on this moon. You guys should have immense move uh casitas kachuma the lakes you know down by the coast are going to go first and then the ones up like uh castaic and pyramid and and the upper higher lakes uh, in the san diego region diamond valley is going off great guns right now because it's about sea level two so all of that stuff comes into play and you just kind of have to look at the lake when and let the fish tell you what they want but normally the Males are going to be up on the point on the tops of the points, kind of searching for areas for spawning. Uh, and then the females will be down a little deeper um, on the drop-off edges, just out of the sunlight too. they will be wherever the drop-off edge is. And if there's clear water, they're going to be wherever that clear water, when you can't see the bottom move out
1: about 10 feet and that's where they'll be. Well, you know, Stan, uh, as a tackle dealer, we have an old saying here, follow the trail of money. So, uh... You know, we like to see what the anglers are using here, especially locally, to catch their fish. And probably the uh, uh, the fastest moving uh, item are square bills that are in any type, as you mentioned, in a crawdad pattern. They can be yep. red, they can be orange, they can be a, a mud craw type of pattern. And that has been extremely successful at El Capitan here, where we've seen a lot of nice fish caught and a lot of big bags of fish it's happening right now at otai it's also happening uh, starting to happen at hodges not nearly as much there was an aba tournament over there and the guys using crankbaits first thing in the morning did pretty well the first two teams on what was considered to be a pretty hard day had 20 pounds of fish so that's not too bad but Also, uh, things that are working, and it was funny because I was watching this afternoon Major League Fishing. It's the heavy hitters. They're fishing all the way back in uh, North Carolina. And I noticed the lure of choice with a lot of the guys fishing in this particular round was Gary Yamamoto's Fat Ika, And that happens to be one of my particular favorites, especially in the springtime. It looks like a, a crawdad. It's laden with salt. You can dead stick it. If you want, it's got a little hula grub tail on it, but I've got to tell you, Stan, I, I don't have the patience to dead stick. an I what I normally do <laughs> is I hook it from the hula end back into the body. I skin hook it because there's really no up and down much rather than bringing the hook all the way through the body. I'll bring the hook through the hula part, have it come below into the body of the uh, lure and have the hook come back out, and then the point back into the side of the bait just past the barb. And then what I do is I'll take a one sixteenth ounce, or if I like fishing deeper, a 1 ounce bullet weight, and I'll put that right on the top of the little hula skirt. So it gives me a little heavier presentation, but it allows me to cast out a little farther. It's a quicker drop, but also it allows me to fish in deeper water. And I found that in springtime, to be really effective here in our San Diego lakes and also an extremely effective lure when you're going to visit Billy Chapman down at El Salto and Picacho. I go there. I like to fish deeper water there too. I like Cincos. Cincos work really well, but one thing about Cincos, I budget myself to five packs of Cinkos when I a day when I go down and, and fish Picacho and, and uh, El Salto. And normally... If I allow myself to, I'll be through those five packs of cinco's by about 11 o'clock. So you figure, if you like fishing plastics, what are you going to fish with for the rest of the thing about the Ica, it's a little more durable than the cinco, So you can fish it in, in deeper water. I can fish it with a little bit of a weight. I can bounce it up and down, and it turns out to be an extremely uh, effective uh, lure. So when you go I to a tackle store, get yourself uh, – Look for the uh, fat cinco's, and you can get them in the two hundred eight, which is the watermelon red. You can get them in the two ninety seven, which is the green pumpkin, and there's are variations thereof. Great, great lure for this time of year. Yeah, two twenty one also. I I,
2: that was my neglect. You know that Ika um, is a great bait because no matter what, you can once you get the hook in it, use a four out hook. You can use a big hook, a wide gap hook. And and heavier line, you can throw it into the sticks and work it back out easily. It works great for that. Uh, and the guys that like to throw it out there and dead stick it and hop it and dead stick it. There, that's a, a technique that a lot of people miss, but they, that is a great way to catch them. And you're right on the cinco. You know, the, with the with the cinco's, I I I love fishing them. This and I will fish one of them this this uh, last tournament, but uh, you'll take that uh ring and put it onto the sinkhole right around the egg sack and gamagatsu has got a weedless uh hook that's basically it's the drop shot hook that's weedless with little uh, you know weed things that stick up on it but that thing works you hook that through with a bigger hook a two or one Um, on your Senko and it's pretty weedless. You put a nail in the bottom of it and you can work that through almost everything. And that is a real fish catcher. I I am in a hundred percent agreement with you on that. I missed that part.
1: Sorry. Yeah, (laughs) uh, Stan, especially if you do like using a Senko, they're so fragile up in the head, but don't throw your Senkos away. As you said, you can use them wacky worming, go out and get yourself a wacky worm tool and you can, you know, put a ring right in the middle of it. And Gamakatsu makes all kinds of great finesse hooks, uh, especially with weed guards. Uh, they also make one with a titanium guard, and the finesse. I had a fisherman that is headed down to uh, El Salto next week, and he bought 60 packs, 60 packs of those hooks for he and his friends down there, because they say the fish just love them. And you can... You can throw any Cinco you want on there. I don't think it really makes a difference, but it makes a great, wacky worm presentation. So don't throw away your old Cincos. Make sure you reuse them because they're expensive enough as they are. Heck, you're talking about a lure that's 80 cents each. They're great for catching one fish, but, man, you know, use them wacky rigging. Yes, Dan?
2: We've watched guys when they needed them, they put a screw in into the small end of the – the sinko, uh, when they needed them for the next day, and they were out, and they take a cigarette lighter and just go back and forth and back and forth across it, and remelt it into some kind of shape, and then keep it going. Uh, so, and if you use uh, that technique, that wacky rig where you put the ring on, you put the hook under the ring, so it saves the bait. You can go, you know, several fish with it before you you lose that per- particular sinko, and and that's a great way to that's a great way to do that. <laughs>
1: You know, Sam, there's also a product on the market called Pro's Soft Bait Glue. There's a picture of Roland Martin on it, and it is beyond just super glue. But the nice thing about this glue is a little goes a long way. So all you have to do is just put a dab in that tear or rip in your Cinco or Ica or even your hookup bait or whatever it is, and it instantly bonds that break together but the nice thing about the pro soft bait glue is if you're using a swim bait with a, a jig head or you want to take and adhere that head to the plastic it's one of the few products that's out there that you just put a little dip of it either onto the lead or onto the plastic and you you just bring it up right to the back end of the the lead head and it immediately bonds itself to the lead head so you don't have that swim bait sliding up and down the shank of the hook. So remember Pro Soft Bait glue when you go out there. It's a, it's a great alternative, and it gives you a, a lot of longevity, especially if you come up with a good color of worm or, or Ica or Cinco or whatever it is, and you don't have a lot of them in your box and you're getting bit on it pretty good, you can use Pro Soft Bait glue to, for the longevity of that bait. Idea. That's great. Yeah, if you haven't got that swim bait fishing,
2: that's a, a mandatory requirement, by the way. <laughs> Especially if you got a good one that's
1: working. <laughs> you uh-huh. keep patching until you done until you can't patch it anymore. Well, hey Stan, that's uh that's our springtime fishing one on one for right now. Those of you who are wondering what happened with Wendy, uh she is indisposed tonight. And we have rumors that she has also drawn a turkey tag. And may be out turkey hunting next week. So, Wendy, I know you're listening, and we wish you the best of luck if we won't be speaking to you for the next couple of weeks. Well, hey. you know, the
2: cool part is she'll get to use her new Roland Martin turkey collar, man. I've got it. It sits in my office where I go, well, man, I got to be able to get out there this spring,
1: but haven't got there yet. Well, I got to tell you, Stan, they are calling. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Guys, we're going to take a break right now. But coming up next, we're going to have Tom Braft again from us from the Sports Fishing Fishing Council. We're going to talk about artificial reefs off our Southern California coastline. So stay tuned. Stan and I will be back after these messages.
3: Hi, Roland Martin here. I'd like to tell you a little about Gary Yamamoto and the Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait Company. It all started with an idea, then a dream, and in 1983, the Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait Company was formed. If you know Gary Yamamoto like I do, and I've known him since 1983, you know he has a passionate love for the sport of fishing. That love is only matched by his obsession to design and produce the highest quality soft plastic fishing lures on the market today. Every bait Gary makes is inspected by hand. Today, more than two and a half million packages of bait are shipped worldwide. On behalf of Gary and his staff, he wants to thank his customers for thinking so highly of his products and wishing you the great success at the sport of fishing. Whether you fish for fun, or fish the tournament circuits like I do, you'll honor Gary for making Gary Yamamoto custom baits a key part of your fishing experience. Take it from me, Roland Martin. When I'm in need of a go-to bait, my first choice is a Gary Yamamoto custom bait
4: turner's outdoorsman california's number one fishing hunting and shooting sports retailer now has 28 locations turner's is your one-stop shop for fishing tackle hunting gear and everything for shooting sports turner's offers a full selection and unmatched prices on the gear you need whether you're planning a fishing trip with the family or chasing giant tuna, Turner's highly skilled staff will make sure you have the gear for your next adventure. Visit turners.com to find a Turner's store near you, and be sure to join the Turner's Discount Club to get weekly ads and specials right to your inbox. Turner's Outdoorsman, your one-stop shop for all your fishing
1: needs. We all like to travel, whether it's for business or it's pleasure. But one thing we all like to do, it's save money. Well, we got a travel tip for you. Bill Boyce has put together a travel website for you that can save you a lot of money. You can become your own travel agent. The site is bookwithboyce.com. You're going to save yourself 5 to 35% on all nationally advertised travel rates. You want to uh, go to Mexico? You want to go to Hawaii? BookWithBoyce.com can offer you outstanding prices. And here's the deal, there's no surprises for accommodations, rental cars, or activities. So try BookwithBoys.com now and thank Bill Boyce later on.
5: Hi, this is Lori Heath. You may know me from some of the fishing boats out of San Diego. I want to talk to you about something that's really close to my heart. Did you know that when you donate blood, you're not only helping others, you're also helping yourself? Donating blood lowers the risk of heart attacks in men by more than 70 percent, lowers the risk of developing cancer and helps you maintain a healthy liver. So donate blood to help someone else and to help yourself. If you can't donate, you can still make a difference with the financial gift. It's the best way to give back, hook, line and sinker. And for more information and to make a financial donation or an appointment, visit San Diego Blood Bank. Dot org. That's the San Diego blood Bank dot org. And just to let you know, I'm also a blood donor.
0: I always wear a life jacket when I'm on the water because I'm lazy. I like floating like a giant turtle covered with SPF 50. The life jacket does the work. I highly recommend this to everyone. Save the ones you love. A message from California State Parks Division of Boating and Waterways.
1: Hey, Stan Vandenberg and I, we want to welcome you back to Rod and Reel Radio. Well, as I mentioned in the beginning of the show, there's a lot of activities going on on behalf of sports fishermen and commercial fishermen behind the scenes that a lot of people don't even know it's happening. All a lot of people do, especially recreational anglers. They want to be able to get their boat. They want to go out, get bait and they want to go fish, and they want to catch fish, and they think that, hey, that's their right, and it's always going to be there. Well, that isn't necessarily always the case. Hey, one of the things I want to bring to your attention tonight, though, is one of the individuals that has been behind the scene helping make artificial reefs here in the Southern California area. I asked him to come aboard the show so we could talk a little bit about it. Let's welcome to Ron Real Radio, the president of the Sports Fishing Conservancy, Tom Raftigan. Tom, welcome to the show, sir. John, thanks a lot. Glad to be here. It is great having you here. You know, Tom, I I don't know. Is there any history behind artificial reefs here in our Southern California uh, uh, area? And how successful have they been?
6: That's uh, kind of a loaded question. Yeah, there's a tremendous history. Uh, about artificial reefs. They go back well into the 1900s. Um, they kind of started, got officially organized, I'm going to say in the mid-1980s. And uh, we actually had a program. We had a program, an artificial reef team. that was, It was run through the Department of Fish and Game at that time, which was the predecessor of the Department of Fish and Wildlife. But they had a couple of guys that were in charge of it. Uh, they really did pretty well. Um, we and, and working with the United Anglers in Southern California early on, and, and Jim Palk had an awful lot to do with it. Uh, predominantly, making sure that we got um, we got permitted and got out in front and, and put together reefs and, and the the Iser Reef the Russ Iser Reef off of um, you know the, the corner of Huntington Beach and Long Beach there it's, it's probably one of the major accomplishments and um, you know it took quite a while to get that done. And, and, you know, doing this is, is, is fairly expensive. We got grants along the way. Um, you know, I did some work with Southern California Edison. They donated used concrete light standards. And, and when we placed those out there, it just made a, an awesome high relief reef. Um, you know, it, it's still quite fishable today. So we've got well, a long history, goes back a while. Um, some good points, some bad points. Um, you know, Early well, what, on, artificial what's... reefs were, were basically anything that went in the ocean. And the Department of Fish and Game solidified that and, and came up and said that, you know, basically quarry rock or, or, or cleaned concrete was, was you know, the the product of choice for that. So, it, it, and it evolved from there.
1: Well, let's talk about, uh, you happened to mention the Iser Reef. Uh, how was is the Iser Reef constructed? And... What made it successful and compared to maybe some of the other reefs that were built and then subsequently have been actually dismantled? Well, I'll, I'll tell you a
6: little bit about the dismantled reef. But first of all, um, you know, Russ Iser is an icon in recreational fishing, and you know, I mean, in, in Southern California, I mean, we're all familiar with the Eiser line. He was just one of the leading guys that got out there in front of things, and and artificial reefs was one of the ones he pushed, and he pushed really hard to get it. Uh, The reef was done, like I said, it was fully permitted with the Department of Fish and Wildlife, and it's just not the Department of Fish and Wildlife. I I mean, the Corps of Engineers, um, State Lands Commission, the the list goes on and on and on 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 how to get these things permitted. But uh, you know, we managed to get that done. Like I said, that was I think the final drop on that reef was in about 1997, or 98. Um, Southern California Edison was important getting it done. Um, you know, I think we actually had a grant from the uh, the State Coastal Commission of all things. Uh, we got some mitigation money to you know tugboats and barges are expensive. So, you know, we, we, we finally got her done. We got it down there. And I think that for quite a while, that was the last artificial permitted artificial reef in Southern California. And you mentioned um, ones that were torn out. Interesting story. There was an artificial reef that was put together off of um, the pier in Newport Beach. Uh, a fellow by the name of Rudolf Streichenberger. Uh, routed up a crew of volunteers, and basically they 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 put everything from tires to uh, assorted other reef, reefing materials, which were not permitted, and, and placed them out there. And, and I, I will go on about what happened to the reef afterwards, but everybody complained about the reef. However, if you wanted to catch a halibut anywhere off the uh, Newport Pier— Striking uh, Streichenberger's Reef was actually a pretty good place to go. So despite the fact that it shouldn't have been there, it actually worked pretty well. <laughs> but um, it, it was there. It was not permitted. And the Coastal Commission came down on poor Rudolph. So Rudolph struck back. What he did is he sued the California Coastal Commission and actually put them out of business and had them declared unconstitutional. So he won around. But yep. the legislature got the thing, got the Coastal Commission back in compliance. Um, you know, it's a long and involved story. But, but the long and the short of it is they got back in, in business again. As you know, they're still there right now. And um, and eventually took Rudolph's reef out of there. So Rudolph was a wonderful, very, very French fellow. Um, and, and like I said, if you wanted to catch fish, despite the fact that it wasn't permitted, it, it worked pretty well.
1: You know, uh, Tom. Uh, we're speaking with Tom Raft We're talking a little bit about artificial reefs here in the Southern California area. Tom, you know, I guess the biggest artificial reef that you know I've ever fished are the breakwaters off of Los Angeles and Long Beach that were put there many years ago. They're in 55 feet of water. They're they stick above uh, uh, the high tide line. They're many, many, many miles long. Uh, they're huge. Tell me, where did the materials for those reefs uh, or those breakwaters come from? And uh, is is there any uh, difference between where that material came from and where the materials are coming from today that we were talking about for Palos Verdes? Uh,
6: to my knowledge, all that material came from um, Catalina. There are large rock quarries on Catalina. I know Connolly Pacific was the main marine contractor, and they would just they ran steady barge trips, and they've done a tremendous amount of work uh, in and around the harbors there, and, and basically um, quarry rock. And and quarry rock is one of the approved uh, of uh, ingredients for artificial reef off California. And those folks have done you know they've done a great job. I mean. We've got probably one of the major harbors in the world uh, between the ports of Long Beach and the ports of uh, L.A. And that giant breakwater out there kind of makes it all possible. And as you mentioned, it's an awesome place to fish. So artificial reefs work.
1: Yeah, uh, for sure. Now, now tell me, let's talk about the, this Palos Verdes Reef in particular. Uh, the inception of it and how it came about, and how it came to fruition over the course of time, and why did it seem like it took so long to do something that was so beneficial?
5: Uh,
3: <laughs>
6: that's a big question, and, and it requires a fairly lengthy answer. Um, the Palace Verdes Reef is a result of the Montrose Settlement, which is going back into the, nineteen I think, 1980s where the Montrose Chemical Company was, was dumping DDT residue. Um, it was going down into the harbor, and it poisoned a lot of the area off of, off of Palos Verdes. Um, sediment comes over, covers that up. It was the best way to, 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 to stop that getting into the food supply. You know, it was just a natural way it happened. But the thing is, Montrose—I uh, forget how many, forty, fifty million dollars—they came up with to mitigate the damage and disaster that they had done. Uh, part of that money went to reestablishing uh, seabirds in, in the islands. Uh, it, DDT works on on the shells, eggshells of, of birds, so it—you know—the eagles and Catalina Island, those were replaced right away because birds are highly visible. When you get beneath the surface, things don't happen quite as fast. I honestly remember being in a meeting. I think Bob Osborne and I were both there in a meeting at the National League Fishery Service Building uh, on Ocean Avenue. I'm going to say it was in 2000 or 2001, and they had been working on this for a while, okay? And they mm-hmm. said, hey, look, at, we think building a reef would be a good mitigation. We go, yeah, let's go. Let's do it. We played with them for about a year and a half and realized that there was nothing getting done, stayed out of the way, and, and there have been probably five different efforts to try and get this process moving over that time. Now, things get more complex as you go down the line. Like I said, to getting an, a, a reef permitted, it requires uh, National Fisheries Service NOAA, um, Corps of Engineers, uh, State Lands Commission, the Department of Fish and Wildlife. Uh, I, I mean, there is a lot of permitting to get done, but nobody was working with it in concert. And, and you know, it was kind of, no had a team on it. Um, I, I'm really hesitant to, you know, if somebody gets paid by the hour or by the week or by the month or by the year, it's hard to get a, pro- a project done that needs to get done on time. And I want to give a Big, big attaboy to Dr. Dan Pondella. Uh, Dan is a professor at uh, Occidental. He's also head of the Southern California Marine Institute and the Ventuna Group. Uh, A lot of titles. Dan does a lot of work. But the thing is, with the Palace Verde's artificial reef, he got everything. He got the ducks in a row. He went out. He got his teams to do the research that, that showed where this thing should actually be put, where it would best be served served, and where it will best serve recreational fishermen? This was an important part of what Dan did. Dan fishes, he understands fishing, and he and he put the thing in the right spot so but it took a lot of work to get this thing done and it it really took years. I mean, he called me I'm going to say probably five years ago, we ended up going up to. I think to Oakland to testify in front of the state lands commission and we testified. Yeah. I mean, I would get a call from him probably every three or four months and go, Hey, look at, let's put the people together and get some stuff going on it. He was really, really good. And that's what it took to get this thing going. And Hey, one other thing I want to mention about the palace Verdes artificial reef, when we testified, and I think this is the last time we testified in front of state lands it must have been probably 2018. Um, State Lands Commission said, yep, this is a good thing to do. And and there was some contention on it from the city of Palos Verdes. But but the Lands Commission said, yep, we're going to do this. And uh, Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom was there, and Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom voted in favor of that artificial reef. So I want to get that out there. You know, we kick the governor for a lot of things, but when he does something right, it's really nice to get behind him. And and he was was, – he was in that corner, so um, hats off to that. But but the, the real thing is, is the work that Dan did on this. It was just stupendous. It was a big big project, and it would not be there except for his exceptional efforts.
1: Hey, we're speaking with Tom Raft again. We're talking a little bit about oh, a little bit about the history of artificial reefs off the Southern California coast. We're talking about specifically one project that seemed to be a success project, and that was. Reef Project off of Palos Verdes. Tom, we've got to take a, a, a little bit of break now for some commercials. Can can I get you to stay on for a little bit longer and, and Stan and I can uh, ask you some more questions about this project? You bet, John. All right. Hey, Tom Raftigan will be back with Stan and I after these commercial messages. Hi, this is John, and I'd like to invite you to the new Angler's Arsenal location in Lakeside, California. We put together a staff of experts that will help you find the tackle and gear you need at a price you can afford. We carry all the major brands, and if you need custom work done, we can do that for you with both rods and reels. How about servicing your old equipment? No problem. We can do it quickly, easily, at a price you can afford. We also do custom hand-poured plastics through Western Plastics. Design the lure of your dreams and catch the fish that have been getting away. So come and visit us in Lakeside. We're at 12255 Woodside Avenue. Or you can visit us at anglersarsenal.com. If you need to call us, we're at 619-466-8355. See you there. Are you looking for a quality fishing experience out of Cabo San Lucas for you, your family, and friends, but are a little set back with what charter company to choose? We urge you to use American and family-owned Lands and Charters. Lands and Charters offers their passengers affordable and all-inclusive services on a variety of vessels and trips. Fish with the latest of fishing gear while experiencing the hospitality of a long time owned family business. Go to lensandcharters.com to see all of their vessels and amenities available. Call Cobble Greg or Jenny at 800-281-5778 when you're ready for an action-packed Cabo fishing experience. Hey, everybody,
0: this is a message for our listeners from a new Baja Magic Lodge at Cedros Island. Cedros Outdoor Adventures wants to make your dream of fishing Cedros Island a reality. Want to go after giant calicos or yellowtail with the best Cedros Island fishing organization, but you just don't know who to contact? Then give Cedros Outdoor Adventures a call at 619-793-5419, or even better yet, log on to their informative website at cedrosoutdooradventures.com, There you can visit their trip calendar and schedule a trip that's convenient for you. Once again, the phone number is 619-793-5419 or their website of cedrosoutdooradventures.com.
1: Run Real Radio is brought to you by BajaBound.com Insurance Services. Are you driving to Mexico? You can buy and print out your Mexican auto insurance policy online in the convenience of your own home, or office in minutes, now with BajaBound.com's easy-to-use website. After printing your auto insurance, check out the BajaBound.com site. There, too, you will find great travel tips and information to help you get the most out of your next road trip south of the border. So this is an important fact to remember. Use BajaBound.com. It's the easiest way to find and get Mexican auto insurance. If you're serious about your
0: fishing, choosing the right tackle is one of the most important decisions you'll ever make. Iserline makes premium fishing lines including monofilament, Dacron, Spectra, fluorocarbon, battle-tested harnesses, and top-angler-tested Iserline tools and accessories. Iserline premium fishing products are created to provide you with the ultimate in strength, dependability, durability, high abrasion resistance, low stretch, and high quality. All Iserline products are 100% guaranteed against manufacturing defects. You just can't buy better value eiserline will replace or repair at their option. No questions asked if you're not pleased with any of their products. Catch what you've been missing. Quality
7: guaranteed. Roddenreel Real Radio is now available as a podcast. You can subscribe to on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting app. Get notified as soon as new episodes are available or go back and listen to our past shows. Browse through all of our archive shows at slash archives and click the subscribe button to get started listening now.
1: Hey, Stan Vandenberg and I, we want to welcome you back to Rod and Real Radio. We're speaking with Tom Raft and we're talking a little bit about artificial reefs off the Southern California area. And in particularly what seems to be one success story when it comes to an artificial reef, reef off of Palos Verdes. And Tom, welcome back to the show, sir.
6: Thanks, Sean. It's good to be here. And, and yes, this is a very successful reef off Palos Verdes. Um, you know, for any of the listeners that actually want to get out there and do some fishing, sport fishing, sportfishingconservancy.org website. We've got a list of of all the modules and and where the structure is out there, you know, off the Palisades Peninsula. So just go to the website. We've got a list of the GPS coordinates on it. You know, if, if you're actually looking to get out there and do some fishing on it.
1: Um, Tom. But tell us though, about the reef itself, when it, came, when, when it came up as a conceptual idea, did, uh, did uh, the people that were involved, did they have to say it's got to be this long, this wide, this is what the uh, GPS location is, it can only be this uh, high, there's got to be navigational uh, warnings around it. Uh, tell us a little bit about the mechanics of uh, how this thing came together.
6: John, I I think those are like the mechanics of of any artificial reef that they're going to be, you know, criteria that it has to, to to pass. Um, You know, I wasn't involved in the the nuts and bolts on on this reef. Uh, You know, I would catch up with Dan. I, I mean, we would probably meet a couple of times a year over the course of about five or six years. And, you know, he'd bring me up to date where it was going and, and normally, you know, I would try and help him get it through some of the process points. He did, you know, the nuts and bolts on, on exactly, you know, um, the depth where it is. And, 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 you know, this wasn't just like, hey, look, we'll pick a spot and drop. It, they wanted a place that absolutely could be fished recreationally. It was part of the settlement for Montrose. that This had to be a recreational fishing reef. And like I said, Dan is a fisherman. He understands, and he said, you know, let's do it right. So what they did is they went out, they studied the local artificial reefs, saw what they were, and said, okay, fine. Here's a place that we can do it. Here, you know, the bottom, you know, it was a sandy bottom that, that would work well. Um, They were looking at, again, it was quarry rock. They were looking to set it up so it would be a fairly high relief reef so that you would have, you know, good, good structure for, you know, uh, habitat. And, uh, you know, he really, he had to do his homework because of the different permitting involved. But, you know, they just did a great job on setting this thing up.
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of people don't realize that the coastline of, of California is eroding into the ocean. And whether you look at the Santa Monica Bay Area, it's a giant alluvial fan from the San Gabriel Mountains. And then as you go up and down the coast, and a lot of us have on sports fishing boats, you notice that there are bluffs from Point Conception going all the way down to the Mexican border and behind, uh, beyond. And those are slowly eroding. And over the years have eroded into the ocean and probably buried, a lot of the structure that was there, so artificial putting up some type of an artificial reef is really important because right now it doesn 't seem like our land is making a lot more reefs out there for us to go fish on as a matter of fact, sedimentation is taking over actually rather quickly
6: sedimentation does, and and you know having you know ten to fifteen million people in the in the l a basin probably doesn't help. Um, yeah, there's a natural process, and and you know we, we kind of add to that. You know it's really important. You know these are restoration reefs, really, is what they're doing. And you know, you know you take a look at you mentioned Point Conception on down. You look at that the, the bottom strata out there on the entire um, Southern California bite, and the estimates I've seen are between 90 and 95 percent soft strata. And that means mud or sand bottom, and you, do, you don't get the productivity that you get off an artificial, off any reef on, on that mud and sand bottom. You know, it, it's just not nearly as productive. So when we get a reef out there, it, it gets to be highly productive. You know, we at the Sport Fishing Conservancy and United Anglers have worked um, a long, long time on trying to get the offshore uh, platforms. Uh, dedicated as artificial reefs Uh, so when they do go out of service and the oil um, you know the energy part of it goes away that we leave the subsurface uh, portion in place as an artificial reef and and, uh, like you're saying this is this is not a new artificial reef this is restoration of the habitat that was there you know long long ago.
1: All right. Well, you know, and a lot of people go, well, there, there's other things happening. Uh, there's uh, uh, old uh, Navy sh- battleships or cruisers that are being sunk. But that doesn't really seem to be very practical. What it takes to get one of those projects going is uh, is like mating elephants. It takes a heck of a long time. And I'm not sure how productive that is of a habitat, especially when it comes to uh, uh, fishermen fishing it.
6: Well, you know, you have the Yukon project, which was done, and that was actually done fairly, not fairly easily, more easily because it actually lies within the city of San Diego. And the city took that over. Um, A fellow by the name of Dick Wong, uh, DUI, you know, divers, he, he did the divers dry suits. He just went to great lengths to get that Yukon that project done and dedicated, and, and, and uh, they, you know, they sunk the Yukon there, and it, it is within the city limits of, the, of San Diego, and that actually helped make it easier to permit, and I'm not exactly sure why. I know, I know that Dick Long went through incredible hoops to get that one done too, but when we start building artificial reefs, this is, this is not like, hey, let's go do it. And you know it's going to be done at the end of the month. These things, un- unfortunately, take years and years to get done. But the thing is, they're done right. Like the Palisburg Reef, they're going to be there for a long time. They're in the right spot, and they're going to do tremendous work for for helping uh, reestablish fisheries.
2: Well, I got a text from uh, well, Stan. That, I got a text from somebody that said, "Hey, how many artificial reefs are there out there for?" Southern California fishermen, you know, from maybe Santa Barbara down, the, 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 there's, there's, I don't know how many out there, but how do you find out, and how do you find them? That was the question.
6: You know, Stan, I, you know, I don't have it with me, but there is a list, and uh, it may be available through the, the Department of Fish and Wildlife website. I know they have maintained a list in the past, and I'm going to say they're fifty. You know, every mm. goes oh, one or two. No, they're a lot. They've done a lot over the years, um, and, and they they have a list of them. Um, I will try and get that list to you. Give me a week on that one, though.
1: You <laughs> know, uh, Tom, the uh, the palace Verde's Matros Reef. Now, tell me, it it seems like it's been established. Is there any way we can tell? Is it a success story? What's happening on that reef? Is it doing the job that we were hoping it would?
6: You know, there's a, a video that um, the Southern California Marine Institute and the Vantuna Group put out, and we have a link to that on our website. And it's about, I'm going to say, a four-minute video, and it goes really into detail about some of the stuff that was done on it, and it has some great footage of what it looks like on that reef right now. And the good part about that is, You take a look at it, and you can make your own decision about how successful it is. And and I think it came off pretty well.
1: All right. And, Tom, to the the best of your knowledge, is there anything else down the line that you can see that is being done like this? Or is this, unfortunately, kind of like a unicorn in the whole uh, uh, evolutionary uh, plan?
6: Well, there, there's going to be other decommissioning done. You know, Rincon Island off of Carpentaria, um you know, off of uh, the coast there on the Ventura-Santa Barbara uh, borderline is going to – that's offline and will be decommissioned. And there's an opportunity for, for some – I mean, it's a good structure there right now, but hopefully we can keep that in place. Uh, platform holly has been decommissioned they're they're doing plug and abandonment on the wells they should be finished with that by I believe August this year they get shut down because of covid uh, and but it's moving along and we will have the opportunity to come up and try and get that dedicated as an artificial reef down the line you know we're working about that you know we're doing what we can on that right now uh, there are a number of other um, oil platforms that will be in various stages of decommissioning, and these will be kind of over the next few years. And and just be aware of it. Keep your eyes open. And we'll do our best to try and get that information out in front because there's a time going, hey, look, at this is important. This You know, this is, this is what we do. And ask fishermen to stand up on behalf of the habitat. So, um, you know, there are things coming. I'm trying to think. I don't think of any other... Strictly dedicated artificial reefs that I know that are that are out there right now. How
1: about the project like at, at Palace Verdes was that partially taxpayer funded? was it uh, uh, where did the funding for this come from?
6: The funding for Palace Verdes reef came from the Montrose settlement and this is uh, going back this is this was a lawsuit against the Montrose chemical company that was settled. Easily, over, well over 20 years ago, let me just put it that way. It was, you know, uh, in the 80s or 90s. And part of the settlement was uh, putting together uh, a way of of helping recreational fishing because of the damage that the Montrose Chemical Company did to recreational fishing uh, in Southern California. So this one was totally funded, um, you know, by a, a... a mitigation settlement, and mitigations can be a good thing. And something like this, like I said, part of the Isor Reef was covered by a mitigation settlement. And I forget the name of the project, but it was a it was a cable that was laid off of off the central coast. Uh, money went into a fund. that wasn't an awful lot, but it was enough for us to pay for the barges and tugboats to to get the final drop on on, on Reef back in the 90s.
1: All right. Well. Tom, if uh, people are interested in finding out more about this project or some of the things that you might be doing with the uh, Sports Fishing Conservancy, Conservancy, how's the best way to go about doing it?
6: See, us at sportfishingconservancy.org. We're online. And like I said, there's, there's a really good video link to this. And then on top of that, you've got all the reef coordinates of of each one of the drops out there of each one of the modules. So, you know, you, you can pick and choose amongst them. And, you know, it, 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 it's right there. And this one's designed for recreational fishing, which is really, I can't tell you how nice it sounds just to say
0: that.
1: Well, well, it sure seems like offshore drilling is something that is not in favor right now with the current political climate. So that, there might be a lot more of these structures that are going to be available down the road and be a, ven- a benefit to uh, both sport and commercial fishermen.
6: You know, you know, John. It's not only sport and commercial fishermen; it's a benefit to the fish. These are living, vibrant structures. I've had the opportunity to dive a number of them, and once you get down there, you, you find out they're actually they're covered with marine life. They're, you know. I can remember I was diving with Bill Shed. We were down there, and, you know, there weren't too many fish around, but, you know, it was the end of the dive, and and, and we'd actually got permission to take uh, uh, a, a couple of, you know, we, we, we weren't fishing, but, you know, we were looking to see if there were any, any shellfish on, on the rigs. And as soon as you start poking around in there, there were calico bass sitting on our shoulders. They're all over the place. <laughs> These things really are vibrant structures. So, you know, they really need to be continued in place. They're they're great for reestablishing fisheries. I think at one point, um, one point we had a good percentage of some of the rockfish populations in Southern California were actually just on the structure. So if you were to take them out, you could lose. And I forget, I'm trying to think which which fish it was particular, but it was like 2% of the entire population were on, um, uh, were just on the, in that time, active drilling structures. So as they come offline, it's really important that we leave that framework in place and, and they make awesome artificial reefs.
1: Well, Tom Raftigan, I can't thank you enough for taking time to be with us. to Give us a little insight of what is happening what has happened and maybe a little insight in the future when it comes to artificial reefs and structures and how they not only benefit the fishermen but also the fish itself i thanks a lot for your uh, your time here on sunday night and we look forward to speaking to you again in the future
6: you and stan take care it's my pleasure glad to do it and uh, you know get behind those artificial reefs they're important
1: all right Thank you. Tom Rafrican from the Sports Fishing Conservancy. Hey, uh, Stan and I, we're going to take a break right now. But, you know, our theme tonight are people that are working on behalf of fishermen and the environment that are also extremely sports minded. We're going to continue that theme with Mike Conroy. But first, a commercial break. We'll be back after these messages.
4: Turner's Outdoorsman, California's number one fishing, hunting, and shooting sports retailer, now has 28 locations. Turner's is your one-stop shop for fishing tackle, hunting gear, and everything for shooting sports. Turner's offers a full selection and unmatched prices on the gear you need. Whether you're planning a fishing trip with the family or chasing giant tuna, Turner's highly skilled staff will make sure you have the gear for your next adventure. Visit turners.com to find a Turner's store near you, and be sure to join the Turner's Discount Club to get weekly ads and specials right to your inbox. Turner's
3: Outdoorsman, your one-stop shop for all your fishing needs. Hi, Roland Martin here. I'd like to tell you a little about Gary Yamamoto and the Gary Yamamoto Custom-Baked Company. It all started with an idea, then a dream, and in 1983, the Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait Company was formed. If you know Gary Yamamoto like I do, and I've known him since 1983, you know he has a passionate love for the sport of fishing. That love is only matched by his obsession to design and produce the highest quality soft-faceted fishing lures on the market today. Every bait Gary makes is inspected by hand. Today, more than 2.5 million packages of bait are shipped worldwide. On behalf of Gary and his staff, he wants to thank his customers for thinking so highly of his products and wishing you the great success at the sport of fishing. Whether you fish for fun or fish a tournament circuits like I do, you'll honor Gary for making Gary Yamamoto Custom bait a key part of your fishing experience. Take it for me, Roland Martin. When I'm in need of a go-to bait, my first choice is a Gary Yamamoto Custom Bait.
2: Hey, bass fishermen. Who do you call for your bass boat insurance? Well if you're not calling me at 1-800-BASS-BOAT- For your boat insurance, you're probably paying too much and may not have the coverage that you need. In 1974, I developed the Bass Boat Program. It is what all the pros use today. The reason? No depreciation or any partial claim for your hull, 7262, or just spell Bass Boat. 1 800 Bass Boat. I know there's too many letters, but the T is free and the call's on me. That's 1 800 Bass Boat, the choice of the pros for Bass Boat Insurance. For more information, log on to 1 800BassBoat.com.
1: Are you looking for a quality fishing experience out of San Lucas for you, your family, and friends, but are a little set back with what charter company to choose? We urge you to use American and family-owned Lands & Charters. Lands & Charters offers the passengers affordable and all-inclusive services on a variety of vessels and trips fish with the latest of fishing gear while experiencing the hospitality of a long time owned family business. Go to lensandcharters.com to see all of their vessels and amenities available. Call Cabo Greg or Jenny at 800-281-5778 when you're ready for an action-packed Cabo fishing experience.
5: Hi, this is Lori Heath. You may know me from some of the sports boats out of San Diego. I want to talk to you about something that's really close to my heart, the San Diego Blood Bank. Fishing for a way to make a difference in your community, consider donating blood or making a financial donation to the San Diego Blood Bank. Your gift will impact medical research, revolutionize how we improve health and treat disease, and most importantly, give the gift of life. But we can't do it without you or without your help. Visit san to make an appointment or to give a financial donation today. It's the best way to give back. And just to let you know, I'm also a blood donor.
1: Hey, Stan Vandenberg and I, we welcome you back to Ron Real Radio. Winnie Toshahar is off tonight. Hey, I want to bring uh, uh, to your attention, we've been talking about people and organizations that are behind the scene that are working on behalf of the marine environment, sports fishermen, people that are outdoorsmen, that are stewards of our particular marine environment and uh, the outdoor environment around us. And so I've asked an individual to come aboard that's one of those individuals. He's a lawyer experienced in operating both sports and commercial fishing vessels, and he brings... To uh, uh, a perspective to uh, our marine environment, uh, maybe uh, comes from a different angle than a lot of the other organizations that we might be uh, thinking about. So I asked him to come board the show and talk about some of the current topics that will be, you know, be ahead of us here in 2021-2022. It's Mr. Mike Conroy. Mike, welcome to Ron Real Radio.
7: Hi, good afternoon or better yet evening now. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to uh talk about some things. Well, Mike,
1: tell us first of all a little bit about yourself. Uh do you consider yourself an advocate for sportsmen, an advocate for the uh the environment? Uh you know, uh, give us a little perspective uh, first of all on where you come from sometimes.
7: Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I I come from a sport fishing background. Started out uh, working on boats out of Long Beach in high school. Uh, got my license, I think, when I was 19 or 20. I don't even remember anymore. <laughs> it wasn't yesterday. Uh, and then ran boats off and on, uh, did the law school thing, did the lawyer thing while running boats on weekends. And then after one experience gone, one too many experiences gone awry in the law world, I uh, decided I wanted to go check out how commercial fishing operates, so I went and ran a few commercial fishing boats for a while and then I really realized that you know our our fishing industry is at the time was lacking a real voice in the management realm, and I figured that I could carve myself out a little niche here. so what I've done is started my own company you know I represent commercial recreational fishing interests and CPFV operators, owners, um, just in, you know, wallowing through the quagmire that is fishery management. And now with the, you know, with with all of the other things that are looming on the horizon, then getting more and more deeply involved in things like offshore wind 30 by 30 and, you know, all all the other threats that are looming on the horizon. So I, I think, you know, to more directly answer your question, you know, clearly advocating for, responsible fisheries, whether they be recreational or commercial, but taking into consideration, you know, there are guardrails up against things we can and can't do that have to comply with the various environmental laws that impact our operations.
1: You know, a lot of people think that in this time of COVID, there has been a lot happening because the legislature has been down. They put a lot of things uh, on the table, but actually there are a lot of issues that have come up that directly a fish both our sports fishing industry and the commercial industry and one of them was a recent meeting of the pacific fishery management council when it came to determining what our quota of sardines are going to be give us a little background about this and you know why this is important to our fishery here in southern california
7: yeah that's a great and very timely and topical issue to be discussing just uh what was it? Two days ago, the Council, Pacific Fishery Management Council, which is responsible for managing Pacific sardine, uh, met. And you know, that that issue was, was on the table. Um, you know, every April, the Council sits down and decides what it's going to do with uh, Pacific sardine because that, that season runs from July 1 through June the 30th. So every April, they they recommend harvest levels for, for sardine. Uh, what made it interesting this year is, you know, we, we are in a condition where the stock has been deemed overfished. So, you know, there are re- certain requirements that come with that. Um, and over the last couple of years since that, that designation, it's become quite the contentious issue. So a, a few weeks ago, the stock assessment was made available for Pacific sardine. Um, and as you noted, you know, because of COVID, uh, there were impacts to stock assessments as well. For for example, you know, stock assessments for sardine and, and other coastal pelagic species, the anchovies and the like, are based on surveys that, the, that NOAA does over the prior summer and fall. Well, last year with COVID, those surveys couldn't take place, so what the so stock assessment folks did was base the stock assessment for this year on a catch-only update. So, you know, and as I noted, it it bears noting that the directed fishery, at least from the commercial standpoint, has been closed for five or so years. So catch is very sparse. So you know, with a very sparse catch, that's going to negatively bias the model. And you know, we saw that the the council's the scientific committee uh, supported rejecting the stocks. The stocks, I think, came through at like fourteen thousand tons, which would have been, you know, pretty pretty poor. It would have supported additional uh, restrictions. Um, you know, I think part of the reason why they might have felt more comfortable in rejecting that was, you know, due to the efforts of the owners and operators of Long Beach Bay Company. You know, they, over the course of two or three weeks in early March, did some near shore surveys, and I think they documented something like 10,000 tons uh, of sardine between San Diego and San Pedro, which made that 14,000 ton number seem even more unlikely. So once the once the stock assessment was rejected, the next question was, you know, how much should be allowed to be harvested? And I think due in, in great part to, you know, across industry voices, you know, we had commercial voices, we had c p f e voices, we had the recreational community, you know, due, due to their combined efforts, council made, you know, the right decision, I, I, I think. You know, they have... Said that you can have 1,800 metric tons for bait without any limits, and then if landings in the live bait fishery got to 1,800 tons, then they would impose a a one-ton landing per trip. So, you know, for context, you know, it was reported that the live bait fishery counted for what a little over a thousand tons between July 1st and last week Um, last year for the 2019-2020 season. It was a, a thousand and eight metric tons. So, I think. I think we're going to be pretty safe and pretty good with that 1,800 metric ton number. So, you know, I, if, if you really wanted to go into the weeds and how the stock is managed, we can do that. But I think, you know, the, the highlight here is that efforts to really curtail, shut down, and reduce the live bait fishery that were being proposed by, you know, some of the more uh, radical environmental groups, you know, the, the council saw through that and, and, and went with common sense. I think noting in part how, how valuable the uh, recreational community is in Southern California.
1: Well, not only that, I think we had a, a good example how when the uh, groups that represent sports fishing and commercial fishing, when we all get together and we form one voice, that we can make a difference because it sure seems like a lot of times we get into these programs after the horses got, left the barn and we're we can make no effect, but with the the help of the organizations that are coming along now that are acting as watchdogs, we can get in front of these, these programs. And then working together, we can kind of debunk what seems to be really bogus science when it comes out. You said, you know, they're, they're taking studies based on, uh, you know, no fish being caught and there were no fish being caught because no one was going out and getting them. So, you know, they came to the conclusion, well, there must be a shortage of the fish. Well, obviously, that's not the case.
7: Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. I, on on all of those points. You know, I have found, especially as we get more and more involved in this stuff, you know, when when all of the user groups, and, and here, you know, I'm considering commercial, recreational, and the charter boat fleets as, as separate user groups, but they're all interconnected. And when we can all come together and fight the, fight, the, the common cause, we seem to have a lot more success and you know hopefully that continues into the future I don't see any reason why it can't I think we're much much stronger together than we are fighting amongst each other
1: uh, that's for sure and and then when you you take into consideration are we in an El Nino time or are we in a la Nina time uh, fish have tails uh, uh, you know things seem to be cyclical and if there's no commercial harvesting of of uh, uh, sardines out there, then one would think, yeah, the population has to be pretty good unless the populations of whales have increased to such a point where they're decimating the sardine population. Then you got a whole different set of problems over there. I I guess maybe I'm sounding a little outlandish, but sometimes (laughs) as just a recreational angler, I have to scratch my head and go, you know, nature is nature and things run in cycles.
7: Yeah, I'm going to really date myself here, but so be it. I mean, when I started on the sport boats, you know, back in the late 80s, there were never sardines in the bait. It was always pitted anchovies, brown bait, pompano, you know, an occasional blue herring. But, you know, we never saw sardines. And it wasn't because... (laughs) <laughs> the, the, the the bait guys were lazy and didn't want to go outside the harbor to catch their bait. There was literally no sardines to be around to be caught for bait. And then as we entered into the 90s, you know, it's hard not to find sardines. And the same thing today. You talk to all the bait operators in, within the Southern California area, and they report having no problems finding bait. And that, that that's a question that I keep answer, or keeping, keep asking and not really getting an answer to. If sardine were really that depressed, we wouldn't see it in in our bait. But these guys have no problems finding it. So let's uh, let a little bit of common sense play into the conversation here.
1: Hey, Stan, uh, oh. and confirm this if, if you don't agree with me. It always seemed like when the albacore was running, we couldn't get anchovies. There was always sardines. And then when the albacore decided to not show up, all of a sudden there were no sardines And all we had was, uh, or there was no anchovies. All we had were sardines. It it just seemed we couldn't find a balance there.
2: Well, that's that's part of nature. You know, you got the ebb ebb and ebb and flow of. Of current changes that have definitely changed uh populations of fish and bait and where they show up and where they don't show up over the many years and like he was saying, you know there, when the albacore were around, man, if you had good big anchovies, you were on because that's their favorite the favorite thing, but it, when it started it, the anchovy thing kind of just dropped off the face, and all we had was the sardines, which we never had for years and years and years, like he was saying. It's just the turnaround. Now you're seeing a whole push of, of anchovies. A lot of them don't make it very far. They don't grow big because of the population of bluefin we have off the coast right now. But the sardine population has boomed and boomed. And, and it's kept sport fishing and the people that want to catch fish alive now for the last several years. And the fact that it's, it's grown you know, because maybe COVID, you didn't have as many people fishing or whatever the problem was on that because they didn't need to take as much as a positive thing on that side. And wait till the albacore show up again and people want an anchovy. <laughs> It'll yeah. be a different story.
1: <laughs> hey, we're speaking <laughs> Boy, with Mike Conroy <laughs> on uh, some of the issues that I think uh, we'll be uh, facing down the road when it comes to environmental issues that concern both ports fishing and recreational fishing. And Micah, uh. uh another uh aspect that's coming up it was it first showed up in our state legislature i think as ab 3030 and it didn't seem like it had a lot of horsepower behind it especially during the trump administration but now we've got a new administration in washington and president biden has come out and he's announced a really ambitious plan for offshore wind generation here in the united states and what I guess the concern is, what effect is that going to have on our our uh, our sports fishing, commercial fishing here in the uh, Southern California area? Is it something that's really viable? We're seeing a big push for it on the East Coast, especially off of Mar- Martin's, uh, Martha's Vineyard, and uh, Gloucester, and everything like that. What's the story about it here in Southern California and off our California? on your coast
7: yeah great questions and thanks for calling this out No, you're 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 100 right you know two weeks ago uh the administration gave a the president the, the presidential administration the federal one gave a a press conference talking about you know dealing with climate change and one of the peers one of the cornerstones of that is going to be You know the use or the development of a rather large offshore wind industry. I think the um, I think within that fact sheet that was prepared in advance of that press conference, they have a goal of having 30 gigawatts of offshore wind operational off the U.S. Now, this isn't just in Southern California or California, but off the U.S. as a whole by 2030. Um, A recent bill introduced in the state legislature estimated that each gigawatt needs about 100 to 220 square miles. So, you know, you can do the math on that. 30 gigawatts is not just a drop in the bucket in terms of uh, lost uh, lost land. So, I'm sorry, last water. And then, you know, f- further in that, that fact sheet, they want 110 gigawatts by 2050, and that's, you know, that, that that's a great, a great deal larger. Um, I did note, you know, I did make mention of the bill that was recently introduced in the California legislature. I'm sure we'll come back to that. But in terms of direct impacts to Southern California, as far as I understand, the Southern California Bight does not have sufficient wind resource that could really support an industrial uh, offshore wind development. So to date, they haven't looked within the Southern California Bight itself. Uh, Most of their Most of the federal government's efforts have been looking off of Morro Bay. And once again, I'm going to date myself. For those of us who are familiar with those fall albacore runs that used to take place up there, um, they're looking to put a wind farm smack dab in the middle of that area and then further up the coast off of Humboldt. So those are the two areas that are currently being looked at off California, uh, we expect there to be additional areas identified probably off Mendocino and Southern Oregon by the end of the year. Um, but as you pointed out, you know, we're, we're, we're a little bit behind what what's going on on the East coast. And I think what, what at least I would hope is that we can learn a lot from the experiences uh, from our counterparts on the East coast and in terms of process or a lack thereof. Um, as we've seen recently, in fact, as early as last Friday, when, the Department of the Interior um, revoked a legal opinion that was prepared by its office that said that um, offshore wind cannot unreasonably interfere with fishing. Uh, that 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 is very telling. And it, it, like I said, I think that, that this current administration is all in regard to offshore wind without really understanding the the unknown impacts. You know, one of the things that we've been continually uh, Questioning is what are going to be the impacts of a three to five to nine hundred square mile wind farm off the central California coast, and will it impact upwelling? And upwelling, as we all know, is one of the primary drivers of productivity off the west coast. And if upwelling is hindered, then there goes you know what will the California current look like? So you and. Know, and with, you know, with, just a hey, things. Stan and Mike, Mike hold on for just a
1: minute. Mike, Stan, we got to take a break. Yeah. Uh, Stan, I know you okay. got a question. Mike, you're kind of like right in the middle of a thought, but let's take a break right <laughs> now. Am. Take a breath and uh, come back. Yeah, you're listening to Ron Real Radio. We've got Mike Khan Roy on with us. We're talking about wind generation. We got some other topics that are on the table after we come on back. So stay tuned. There's still a lot more Ron Real Radio to come. This is John, and I'd like to invite you to the new Angler's Arsenal location in Lakeside, California. We have put together a staff of experts that'll help you find the tackle and gear you need at a price you can afford. We carry all major brands, and if you need custom work done, we can do that for you with both rods and reels. How about servicing your old equipment? No problem. We can do it quickly, easily, at a price you can afford. We also do custom hand-poured plastics through Western Plastics. Design the lure of your dreams and catch the fish that have been getting away. So come and visit us in Lakeside. We're at 12255 Woodside Avenue. Or you can visit us at anglersarsenal.com. If you need to call us, we're at 619-466-8355. See you there.
4: Have you dreamed of experiencing the world class in and offshore fishing off the exotic tropical Pacific coast of mainland Mexico? Why not fish the sailfish capital of the world Manzanillo, Mexico with the folks you know and trust Cedros Outdoor Adventures In Manzanillo you can find roosterfish, sailfish, marlin, tuna dorado and more all within 20 miles of the shore Our friends at Cedros Outdoor Adventures are offering an all inclusive travel package to Manzanillo that makes your winter fishing dreams a reality for a special price of $21.95. Cedros Outdoor Adventures is a name you learn to trust for safety and value. But these trips are available for a limited time only. Starting this fall through March 2021.
7: Learn further trip details and make your reservation at cedrosoutdooradventures.com or call at 619-793-5419.
1: One Real Radio is brought to you by BajaBound.com Insurance Services. Are you driving to Mexico? You can buy and print out your Mexican auto insurance policy online in the convenience of your own home or office in minutes now with BajaBound.com's easy to use website. After printing your auto insurance check out the BajaBound.com site. There too you will find great travel tips and information to help you get the most out of your next road trip south of the border. So this is an important fact to remember. Use BajaBound.com. It's the easiest way to find and get Mexican auto insurance. Hey, Stan Vandenberg and I, we want to welcome you back to Ron Real Radio. Our special guest this hour is Mike Conroy. And we've been talking about the federal government's ambitious plan to uh, establish uh, wind generators off our California coast, uh, specifically 30 gigawatt generators by 2030. Mike has just told us what the size of one of those uh, generating fields would be. We were talking about how it might impact the migratory plan of, uh, of, uh, of fish up and down our coast. And Stan, you were going to come up with a comment or question. So why don't you lead us off? It just irks me. <laughs> you know, we have really, really big problems. We just had a,
2: a gentleman on prior to Mike. Talking about artificial reefs and how hard it was to put an artificial reef down. Let's you know get a thousand yards of artificial reef and what you have to do to get that down there and it'd take thirty-five years to get one in. Whereas now we're talking about not a thousand yards, we're talking about thousand miles <laughs> of something that will impact not only the environment under the water but above the water too. You can't have windmills whipping in the fog with birds flying through it. It's not gonna be a good thing. You can't have I mean it happens on our on our desert areas right now. You drive around, you see thousands of these windmills. It's not like it's a pretty sight, it's just there. And it's and it's had an effect on the environment and the habitat of animals that live in the <laughs> that arena too. What that would happen what happens when they put that much into an environment that they've never done it before is going to be, I think, a travesty. One, one, you can put it in without having 35 years of, of fight to get a 1,000 yards in. Now you can just put them in the ocean. That just blows me away.
1: Well, Mike, uh, uh, a question to you, and I don't know uh, if you can answer this or not. We're talking about all these wood-generating facilities off the coast. Somehow the energy... That they create has to be transmitted from that point onto shoreline somewhere. Has to be gathered. I mean, you're talking about a, a tremendous logistical problem on the ocean bed before it even gets to land.
7: Yeah, you're right, and that's <laughs> that, that's one of the many questions that we have asked. Um, you know, how do they You know, where are going to be the landing spots? For these transmission lines, what do the transmission cables look like? What are going to be the impacts of the transmission cables on the habitat, the marine environment, and species in the area? Um, you know, electromagnetic fields that are generated by these transmission cables. You know, there have been some studies done on impacts. To, I think they did one on Dungeness crab, and they said that there wasn't any. But you know, I'm more concerned, and I think all of us would be more concerned. Is this going to, in any way, shape, or form, Hinder the ability of a salmon, which is dependent upon returning to its river of birth, from returning to its river of birth. You know, we we, we just—I'm not sure that we know what the answer is to that for our Pacific coast salmons. And, and there's just so many other. I was saying that's just that one we don't thing know. too. I
2: mean, the, to be able to say, "Oh, we're just going to throw them in here," without doing any research about what the effect could be, is. Just asinine, but we're seeing more and more of that unfortunately but that that's tremendously volatile when you talk about that many pieces in in the ocean and what it could have an effect on especially off our coastline
7: no you're're you're hundred percent you're right uh, you know and it's you know th- th- this is all being done I- I- as in response to you, you know the changing climate. And, you know, I, speaking strictly for myself, but, you know, whatever reasonable steps that we can do to help to, to help with that, I'm fine with it. I, I just don't know that putting 1,000 miles of wind farms off the coast is the answer um, because the, the harvest opportunity is lost off our coast. We're going to be importing that fish from third, you know, <laughs> non-U.S. sources and the greenhouse gas emissions associated with those imports is going to exceed the savings that that we're getting by putting in these wind farms. So it's just, it clearly doesn't seem like it's been well thought out, well planned. And yeah, I, I, there's a bunch of us who've been working on this for a while that are really scratching our heads, wondering what the heck is really going on here.
1: Right. Well, Mike, uh, going to another subject, then let's uh, talk about, uh, What is happening with this uh, 3030 initiative? It was uh, first uh, brought to our attention with our state legislature that they called it AB 3030, and now the feds seem to be getting behind this 3030 initiative. Can you explain to us a little bit about what it is and what the ramifications of it might be?
7: Yeah, I can. Thanks. I think this is another one of these really important things. And I think you, you you highlighted where this all really kind of got its impetus, you know, for all of us getting really engaged and that was with that state bill last year, A B thirty thirty. And this is just another one of those examples like you cited earlier with sardine, where the commercial sector, recreational sector, charter boat sector, in this case, you know, a bunch of the, the hunters, land you know, land side folks all came together as a unified coalition in opposition to this bill. And that bill established a state goal, which would be protecting 30% of states' coastal waters. You know, one of the reasons why we were uh, so against it was we didn't know what protect meant. No one no one could offer us a definition of what that meant. So yeah, as soon as that bill... Well, b- before we do this, maybe I should go back and just give you a brief overview of what 30 by 30 actually is. I guess I'm assuming that everybody, everybody understands it. Yeah,
5: let's uh, do 30 that. 30 by 30
7: is an initiative that stands for the proposition that in order to meet environmental challenges, and w- you know what those are, whether it be climate resilience, whether it be biodiversity protection, conservation of species, whatnot, we need to set aside 30% of our lands for specific purposes. And... That's what that was, was all about. And like I said, last summer, we were able to defeat AB 3030. Um, but as we all know, shortly after that bill died in committee, uh, Governor Newsom signed a state executive order, which identified that the goal of the state is to conserve at least 30% of California's lands and coastal waters by 2030. Um, it assigns the state's natural resource agency to kind of spearhead that effort and establish a process whereby stakeholders and the good news is, is that the fishing community is specifically identified as a stakeholder with whom engagement must occur, but we have yet to see anything um, move forward on that. And then, as you noted, in, in January, the president just, uh, signed his executive order tackling the climate crisis at home and abroad, and that addressed the 30 by 30 initiative and defined the, the U.S.'s goal is conserving at least 30 percent of our lands and waters by 2030. And that EO assigns the Secretary of Interior with Commerce and a few others with identifying strategies to accomplish that goal. And like, the, like its California counterpart, uh, fishermen are specifically identified as your group, user groups from whom input will be taken. Um, we're engaged. Comments are still being taken on this. Uh, the Pacific Fishery Management Council wrote a really good letter that talks about conserve, the difference of conserve versus protect and I think, that's, I think that, that, that's where the highlight is going to be moving forward as these things continue to unfold.
1: Mike, is it your feeling that uh, with this proposal, especially when it comes to offshore, that that is including those areas that are designated as marine preserves and, and conservative areas, uh, MLPAs, or do you think this could actually be above and beyond that?
7: That's another great question. And that was the primary reason why we all opposed A B thirty thirty is because the author and the sponsors couldn't really tell us what they meant by protect. You know, we, we would remind them that what I believe sixteen point three percent of state waters are already covered by MPAs. Um, but did they do they view all MPAs alike? Is an MPA where take is allowed viewed differently than an MPA that is an, a, a no-take MPA, and, and and they couldn't address that. So that was part and parcel why, why we opposed it, you know, and the conversations that we're having at the federal level, you bring up a good point. You know, the state MPAs, we believe, would fully qualify. A lot of the activities taken by the Pacific Fishery Management Council, in particular, identification and designation of essential fish habitat, the Calcott conservation areas, for example, we would argue that those are areas that would be deemed conserved. We would say that marine sanctuaries would fall under that definition of conserved. And I think up until recently, we might have been... That argument might have held some weight, but, you know, there's some... The the MPA Center, which is a a federal department on the federal side, recently changed their definition of a marine protected area so that it, now it is more closely aligned with the, what is it, the international union, well, of an international body's definition, which seems to be more restrictive and really seems to stand for the proposition that there has to be some serious limitations on take in order for an area to qualify as protected. And that's going to be the, the the really heavy lift moving forward is you know to get the administrations to, to, to understand that you can have conservation measures that protect biodiversity, habitat, and the like, without limiting access to commercial, recreational, charter boats, and whatnot.
1: Well, I guess this uh, this whole thing then comes to uh, you know talking about sustainability of uh, uh, our, uh, our our marine environment with regards to edible seafood and those other creatures that you know are in the environment and. And that leads me up to probably the last question to you, be while we still have time. Netflix just came out with a series called Seaspiracy that started off, I think, with good intention, bringing, bringing uh, attention to its viewers of the problems when it comes to pollution and uh, uh, sustainable seafood. But then it kind of went downhill from there. Can you, can you give us just a little background about this Netflix production, what it was all about, and you know what what it's leading to.
7: Yeah, boy, that was a that was an interesting uh, an interesting piece of film. I I watched it the first time and I couldn't really watch it, um, and then I had to watch it a second time because I'm a glutton for punishment, apparently. <laughs> and I think you're right. I think I, I think it does touch on. It touches on things that we need, that we should be spending more time talking about. You know, clearly the pollution problem is something that needs to be discussed more. I think the IUU, the illegal unreported and unregulated fishing that takes place, does nobody any good. Um, slave labor in commercial fishing operations in Southeast Asia, surely a problem, um, but for the... You know, for the, the 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 infomercial maker to say that he just learned about these things, that that's disingenuous because those things have been been talked about for years. So, I think he I, I, I think I think he had an opportunity to take this in a good place, but then, you know, when when you start saying that the Gulf that the Deepwater Horizon oil spill was good for the marine environment, and when you say commercial fishing caused Ebola. And you know a bunch of the other, just ludicrous claims that he made, um, it just it just lost credibility. And you know I'm I'm comforted at least at least on the social media side of things, they're they're taking quite a bashing from fisheries scientists, you know fisheries managers and the like for really being short sighted and for you know presenting a vegan lifestyle infomercial as a bashing of the fishing industry without regard to the differences in the fishing industries.
1: Well, I think they brought, you know, there were some good points that were brought with regards to pollution of of the ocean, the, the avail, you know, the amount of plastic that developing countries and countries around the world are, are putting into the ocean and how, as that plastic breaks down, it's getting into the food chain, obviously not, not a good thing, but, uh, you know, to come out and say that the ocean, when it comes to the sustainable seafood that we depend on uh, as a source of protein, will be empty by you know, I like twenty
7: twenty thirty seven
1: or something like that, was just kind of a, an incredulous statement to make.
7: Yeah, I was I was really disappointed at that part of it. You know, Sylvia Earle has done a lot for oceans conservation and the like. And, you know, that, that study, that 2006 study that, that postulated that the oceans could run out of fish by 2048, uh, that, that paper was retracted by the authors themselves. And I'm assuming that she knew that, given her, you know, kind of lofty status in the field. So for her to source that as reputable to me was was reckless um and then for the author to call back upon it at some point I'm sorry not the author uh, for the filmmaker to at some point you know reiterate that it, it just it serves no purpose it it it's clearly propaganda bashing you know it, it just that but you're right that that was one of the points of the movie along with the you know the the other two instances i mentioned earlier that that, that really pushed it over the edge for me
1: yeah you know, it seems like a lot of these issues that we run into that we've talked to about tonight and uh, other issues that have been down the road uh, that are started by individuals or group that are groups that are well-financed, they're looking for a particular cause, and that they start with a certain amount of truth. Uh, the fact that, hey, something uh, should be looked at to conserve, but then it, go, it seems to go from a, a scenario of conserving to protecting to closing and that in order to to save this particular environment or save this particular species we we definitely have to close it down and we find out that you know fishermen sportsmen commercial fishermen they actually are the stewards of the environment and they're kind of looking out for the future as well as anybody out there and I got to tell you for the most part we're usually way undergunned, way underfinanced, and find ourselves in a predicament where we're defending ourselves after the damage has been done by these
7: groups. Yeah, I think I think that's a very astute observation, um, and we see it play out you know in in every venue that at least I participate in. Um, you know, I want to harken back to the sardine thing that we that happened last Friday. You know, there were environmental groups who were who were lobbying for a de minimis wide-bait fishery, and I don't have the number in front of me, but it was something like 350 tons. And that would have been crippling to, you know, the, 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 the fishing economy in Southern California. I mean, it's it, it just it, – it, but thankfully, common sense prevailed. But you're right, there, there is no shortage of these well-funded – organizations and that 30 by 30 thing that we just got through talking about you know that there's a foundation that dangled out a billion dollars to for groups to support and move forward this 30 by 30 initiative. So it's you know it's it's not a fair fight a lot of the times and it's it's the it's the quintessential David versus Goliath but you know we're we're holding our own and and I think that's because we have truth logic and common sense on our side most of the time.
1: Well, Mike, I think we have to use this as sort of like a wake-up call, not only uh, because of the current political environment that we are, that not only in the state and the federal level, but also there are a lot of groups, as you say, that are well-funded out there that are looking just to close everything down in the name of being protected. So I guess... The million-dollar question is, us individuals that are sportsmen, casual observers, uh, casual fishermen, not not being in the industry, what can we do to help stem this tide that seems like we are constantly having to fight and in a lot of cases coming up on the short end of?
7: Yeah, boys, that's a great question, and I wish I knew the answer to that one. I mean, I'm going to give you my stock answer, which is just be aware. You know, it's 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 not like how things were twenty, thirty years ago, where you could just kind of stick your head in the sand and and nothing was coming. Um, you know, I I applaud what you do. Uh, you know, this is a platform where folks can learn of these things that are coming and learn what the you know what what the Implications of the thirty by thirty is, or what the implications of offshore wind is, and I think that the more awareness that there is, and the more that there's talking about it going on, then the more it get, it gets traction. I was, you know, the State Lands Commission recently held two webinars about these two demo project wind farms they want to put off Vandenberg in state waters, and they had one about six months ago that maybe 10 people attended and I I was really discouraged, but this, the the two that they just had, I think that there were up to, you know, 50 or 60 individuals from the commercial side, the recreational side, the charter boat side. So clearly there's awareness is raising. Um, So, you know, to that, I applaud it. And we just need to be better at getting our message out and having people that, you know take an interest in the stuff rather than just kind of gloss over it and say yeah that'll never happen because as i think we're going to see here things that we thought would never happen or you know a thousand square mile wind farm off california for example
1: hey stan, well, you do, you our,
7: is, or or stan do you think our
1: stan oh, do you think our good friend uh wayne coto from uh the coastal conservation association was if he was listening, was kind of beating on his radio a little bit and saying, hey, I know a way of, of helping on out and keeping on track of this. And Stan, this may be your cue to to, to give a, a a little pub for the CCA.
2: Well, I was going to say, you know, even, you know, with all of the things going on, I, I'm on the board for the L.A. chapter of the uh, Coastal uh, Commission of California here trying to put – Make make artificial reefs and bring you know protect the fishing and and uh, the fishing areas for us Californians. Um, Join the CCA. That'll help because there we actually have a a a legal battles that we've been able to win uh, by you know getting after the lead thing. You know one of those little things here. You know we got situations up in the delta we've had for the even the freshwater side of things, but ongoing to To put out the information because I guarantee you people don't know about the wind thing that's going to happen or that's in the mix. You never hear that on the radio or, or unless it's with us here. You've never heard it on a TV report. You've never heard it anywhere. Uh, it's unfortunate you can't get the information out. But, you know, the CCA we've been involved with battling for putting the, the reefs in and getting that done and and battling for n- not taking over more pieces of the California coastline for where you take it away from families that just want to utilize the beach and go fishing for perch has no effect on the environment whatsoever. And you're lucky if you catch a few for most people. But all in all, you know, it's a frustration. I know Mike's frustrated. I know we, as fishermen in in our own industry, trying to protect our own industry, it's it's a battle, and uh, and it's something we've got to get involved with. And it's not only the people that are fishing offshore, but all of the people that are fishing the local lakes in the state of California and the streams, and want to go camping and utilize those areas. They have to be involved, too. It's going to change everything we do and everything that we would. Now, look what happened with COVID-19. Nobody is traveling. So everybody has gone out and bought RVs and campers and tents and camping gear and boats and fishing gear, wanting to utilize the, the space that we have within our country, and they want to shut it down. I don't understand this. And I know people don't know that this is even happening. So uh, it's a battle that we all, like Mike said, you got to take your head out of the sand and get involved and start working for the future of what you want your kids to have. Because if you don't, they won't have a future to be going outside and they won't be able to fish off the beach. You won't be able to fish off the coast. You might not be able to fish in your own lakes the way it's working, but it's, you know, fortunately we got guys like Mike that are working for us. Uh, You got the CCA of California here trying to minimize the effects and, and fight. We've got lawyers across the nation with the CCA that are uh, working to help keep the fisheries that we have open and going and build new fisheries offshore even. So there's, there's people that are trying to make a difference here. I would encourage all of you people that are listening to become part of that and not sit on your sofa and hope that it just turns out okay.
1: Hey, we're speaking with Mike Conroy, too. And, Mike, before we let you go and end the show tonight, if you have any last uh, thoughts that you would like to convey to our audience about the projects that have been happening and the work that's being done out there on behalf of not only sports fishing but commercial fishing and the marine environment itself.
7: Yeah, no, I I just really appreciate the opportunity to, you know, come on and, and, and just discuss these issues. I think, as you noted, there aren't people that are talking about this. I know, John, you know, if you go onto my Facebook page, you get sick of reading about offshore wind and 30 by 30 and things like that. But, you know, I, I don't have a million followers, so, you know, th- those messages get lost. But, you know, we, we touched on just a few things. You know, there's others, right? There's the Air Resources Board looking at – Emissions from boats. So that's, I expect that at some point in the future. I know the charter boats and the commercial guys are clearly in the uh, crosshairs of the ARB, but, you know, from what we understand, they're coming after the recreational guys in 2025. So, you know, this is, there's a lot going on, and, you know, the only way to really, you know, su- support your, your, <laughs> Who, whatever group you feel most comfortable being with, if it's CCA, if it's SAC, if it's whoever it is, get involved, pay attention to what's going on because there's a lot going on and a lot of it's not really being done, you know, right out in the public eye.
1: All right. Mike Conroy, thanks a lot for being with us. And, you know, yeah, people just want to go out and fish, but unfortunately in this day and age, It isn't quite that simple because there's a lot of folks out there that prefer that we don't, and we do something else. And if we want to keep this lifestyle that we've all grown up with and pass it down to the next generation, we have to be proactive. Mike, I can't thank you enough for being with us tonight.
7: Me too, Mike. Yeah, thank you, you all, and you're you're, you're 100% right. You know, I, I, my commercial fishing clients, I tell them all the time: your your job isn't just to provide seafood for Californians and the nation. Now, your job entails standing up for yourself and fighting for your ability to do that. And same no. thing, you know, is on the recreational side. It's you know, oh. it, it's it's not enough to just sit back and hope somebody else got you covered because there's too much to get covered these days.
1: <laughs> gotcha, Mike Conroy. Thank you very much for being with us.
7: Perfect. Thank you very much. Have a good evening.
1: All right. Hey Stan, how about next Sunday night? We go back to more typical conversations like uh, where are the fish? How do we catch them? Uh, when we catch them, how do we season them? How do we cook them? And, and things like that. You know, I mean, unfortunately, this has gotten to be part of the fishing game, but I'm glad that at least we have the opportunity to bring issues like this to the attention of our listening audience because there are people out there. That just would prefer we don't do this.
2: Oh, I know. And and you know, the fact that I'm able to go to these tournaments and, and fish these tournaments, even though they've got a little shutdown here and shut down there across California, we're able to compete and enjoy the the fisheries that we have here. And I you know, losing by two one hundreds wasn't a big deal. <laughs>
1: hey Stan, that has to be it for tonight. Hey Otto, thanks a lot for keeping us on the air. Ben Harvey, our local producer. And always in memory of Big Tuna Bill and Eddie McCune that kept us on the air, and Mr. Paul Leader from El Cone Ford. We'll be back next Sunday night with more Ron Real Radio Live. So thanks for listening, everyone. Good night for now. We gone fishing
2: instead of job. Just-